Welcome, everybody. Welcome to today's, today's call with Callan Capital to discuss the current state of the real estate market with a very special guest, Doug Schwartz, who's the managing director and co-portfolio co manager of J.P. Morgan's core real estate portfolio. In addition to Doug, I'm joined by, by Tim Callan, who's also a managing partner at Callan Capital, who will be introducing Doug in today's format here very shortly. First, there's always a lot of guests on the call, so just want to give a quick introduction to Callan Capital, which is an independent wealth management firm started by myself and my two brothers 16 years ago. We're a growing business. Uh, we've actually got two physical offices. One is in La Jolla, California. The second is in Austin, Texas. But now we've got remote staff in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Fort Lauderdale, and Indiana. Currently, we're, we're managing about $1.8 billion in marketable securities. And we feel that real estate should play a role in our clients' portfolios over the long term. It's very important for us to keep our clients and the friends of our firm informed on the current trends in the global economy and the financial markets, and that's the goal of today's call. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to Tim Callen, who will introduce the speaker in today's format. Thank you, Trevor. Tim Callen here, one of the managing partners at Callen Capital as well, and I have the pleasure to introduce our speaker here today, Mr. Doug Schwartz. Now, Doug is the managing director and co-portfolio manager of J.P. Morgan REIT which is an SEC-registered non-listed real estate investment trust. To put that in perspective, the total REIT has about $330 million of gross assets under management. Now, Doug has been with the Real Estate of Americas at J.P. Morgan for over 18 years, most recently as Chief Investment Officer, responsible for all transactions and asset management across the entire range of fund uh, complex which has a total of $80 billion in assets under management. He has 29 years in total industry experience. Thank you so much, Doug, for joining us on today's call. Now, I'm going to kick us off with a couple of questions, but uh, to get into a little bit of, of housekeeping, for folks that are on the line, you have the ability to ask questions under the Q&A section of the Zoom call at the bottom of your screen. So please type in your questions. Trevor and I will get to those questions towards the end of the call, the last 15 to 20 minutes. But I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with our first question uh, for Doug. Now, Doug, there has been no shortage of news surrounding real estate and affecting real estate over the last couple of years. We have raising interest rates. In fact, during this call, we're expecting another quarter point hike. We have tighter lending standards shifting demographics, concerns in the banking sector, and a potential recession all coming to fruition at the same time. So that being said, can you give us your broad uh, analysis and remarks of real estate, commercial real estate in general? Um, so where where are we today? I mean, the markets, uh, there's, really, it, there's, there's really two things to think about. It's kind of the opposite of the equity markets right now, actually. If you think about the equity markets, they're ripping because of a couple of a couple of names, and then the rest of the universe is sort of middling. In in real estate, it's the opposite of that. So we have mostly healthy markets across multifamily, industrial, retail, self storage. Uh, a lot of property sectors doing quite well despite a slowdown. And then we have the office market, which is really in bad shape. And uh, um, and so most of the news that you're reading about is, of course, about the the, the office markets because um, uh, because that's where the the fun is. 
Um, in, in a lot of cases, uh, the fundamentals are so bad in office that a lot of um, loans are worth more than the, uh, the loan amounts are, are, are higher than the uh, properties are worth. And so we're going to see a lot of foreclosures and change hands in the office space. And I don't see a lot of, um, uh, that's not going to change in the next couple of years. It's, it's, it's going to continue. The bad news is going to continue in the office markets irrespective of how, what you think about work from home and the way our society will work, there's the, the fundamentals are very weak. And, um, and so even if, if demand uh, picks up uh, briskly, it's going to take a long time for those markets to heal. The rest of the markets are quite healthy. And uh, uh, now what's interesting for JPM REIT, which is, which is launching really after the rate hike cycle began in earnest last year, launched at the end of last year, um, is that uh, while the property sectors are healthy, there are a lot of pressures on owners because the, their debt balances are generally higher than they could refinance those assets at today. And so there are a lot of owners that are starting to feel the pressure of refinance where they either have to put more money in their into their um, assets um, to refinance them, or they might choose to sell. And so we're seeing the beginnings of a market where there are a lot more sellers than there are buyers. And, and that uh, that's actually, you know, that's pushed prices down, let's say 10 to 15%, even though the fundamentals in those properties are quite strong. And so that's it's really the first time in my career I've seen that. Prices dropping while uh, fundament fundamentals are, are real strong. Typically, prices only drop uh, when there's a recession. And, um, and sure, we might see one here soon, but, but um, uh, the values got really interesting towards the end of last year. So, so looking forward, uh, Doug, do you see it continuing or where do you see things headed? And also follow-up question to that being from JP Morgan, which banks are most affected by you know, holding these, lo these loans on bal their balance sheets? Is it the kind of the mid-tier banks, the larger banks like J.P. Morgan? You know, where, where, where's the pain going to be felt? It's so far, it's been hard to tell. Um, of the of the trades I've seen and the and the deals I know that are in trouble, it's really dispersed. There's quite a few foreign banks and foreign funds um, that that own a lot of the office paper. Of course, a bunch of it is in is in CMBS. Um, but those leverage levels are pretty low in CMBS, so it doesn't, um, you know, it shouldn't hit the CMBS too hard. Um, some of it, there's certainly more in regional banks than there are in the money center banks. Um, but I don't, the money center banks aren't immune. Um, so I think there's there's going to be a little bit of pain. I I don't think the pain is going to be so much felt by the lenders as much as it is for the asset managers that own those properties. So that's where the real wealth destruction has occurred is is in the in the ownership. I think a lot of the the leverage just wasn't uh, put on like you know like we saw in two thousand six and two thousand seven. So I don't think the pain in the lending side is going to be quite as acute. Um, but certainly there's a lot of value destruction on the on the equity side. So you talk about values dropping, but where do you see things headed from here? I mean, do you continue to see lower prices or do you think there's any kind of a pivot at all I think for for the healthy product types which is the sec the sectors that we're chasing and 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 I can get into 
some of that uh, about JVM REIT. But um, for the healthy product types, I don't see the, the values falling uh, much further so long as the Fed uh, kind of evens out here in the in the fives, you know, later on today and, and over the next few quarters. Um, you know, almost all of the change in value in those um, in those property types is due to the cost of capital. And of course, you all can can invest in fixed income at, at attractive rates. And so the cap rates on those assets, so let's say for your typical apartment building, whereas they might have traded at three and a half percent two years ago, uh, that asset trades at, let's say, four and three quarter percent today. OK, which is a massive change in value. However, the rents really ran up during that period. So not all of the of the of the value. Um, we didn't see the value drop necessarily from a three and a half yield to a four and three quarter. It's kind of halfway in between, you know, because the rent, the, the earnings went up for each one of these properties or for most of these properties. So we, we saw values drop in apartments and industrial, let's say. 10, 15, 20%, on average, 15%. I think it stays there. Uh, it's starting to be really attractive, these values, because you can buy, for example, apartments at 10 to 20% below replacement cost. And it's, been, it's really the first time since the Great Recession that you could buy stabilized leased investments below replacement cost. And that's generally a great time to buy. So I think a lot of buyers are coming out of the woodwork seeing seeing an interesting basis. I don't think that's going to get much cheaper without, you know, the, the investors um, stepping in and filling the void, you know, investors like ourselves. So to focus a little so, bit more on, so, cap, on cap rates, you mentioned uh, cap rates in your remarks there. Can you, can you start out first define the cap rate for folks on the call and talk about how it has been impacted by the raising interest rates? You spoke to a little bit about it there a moment ago. Sure. So um, if if an investor buys an apartment project at a three and a half cap rate, that means they think the first 12 months of their ownership, they'll earn an income yield of three and a half percent. And so if the cap rate, if the if the cap rate goes up to four and three quarter percent, there's a drop uh, absent any change in the income. There's a drop in value. So so sort of like you think about bond yields. In a way, if you, if you think about equity multiples or, or PEs, um, it's almost like the PEs on apartment projects went from 30 24 months ago to 20 today. And it's a massive, massive change. And that's driven by the, the interest rate. Now, again, the earnings on these properties went up significantly after COVID. So, uh, uh, so the the value destruction isn't isn't quite you know just a change in the PE from thirty to twenty. It's more like a thirty to twenty five kind of uh, on the old on the old income. Is that does that make more sense, Tim, or should I yep. elaborate some more? And and you can talk a little bit about how the debt service impacts that as well. Right. So <clears throat> today's lender. Um, when a lender sizes a loan, typically they're not focused as much on loan to value as they are on coverage ratio. So what's the income of the property relative to the, to the burden, the finance burden? 
And, and typically that coverage ratio, I'm gonna stick with apartments because it's the easiest. Typically, if you're making, let's say uh, $120,000 a year on, or $125,000 a year on an apartment building, uh, you could size a loan so that your, um, so that your interest burden is about a hundred grand a year. So let's, let's say 1.25 times the, 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 the loan payment, the interest rate. Okay, so now that the interest rates went from, let's call it three and a half percent on a fixed rate financing to five and a half percent on the fixed rate financing, um, that interest burden for that owner is now, and I'm gonna get this math wrong, but instead of a hundred grand a year, is now let's say 140 grand a year. Well, 125,000 of income can't cover a $140,000 mortgage. So the mortgage size has to shrink. And, and, and uh, so that's, that's the issue that a lot of asset managers are facing today is that when their loan comes due and a lot of them chose short-term financing, particularly with floating rate debt, when that loan comes due, they're not gonna get the proceeds from the next lender that uh, that they got from the last lender, and they're going to need to come out of pocket. And for syndicators, that's very challenging. For a lot of well-capitalized asset managers, they can do it. The properties are generally still worth more than the loan balance, so they're not going to walk away from these loans. But they either have to come up with the cash, or uh, or they have to sell the asset. Got it. I'd like to remind everybody: if you have any questions, please use the chat room, and we'll get to those after. Uh, our initial questions here. So we've been talking a lot about uh, the commercial side of the, of the world. What about residential? There's been a lot of shifts post-COVID in terms of residential. And just to remind you, a lot of our clients are based in California and Texas. Do you see any regional opportunities uh, in the re residential market? So we only, uh, in our funds, we only do um, for rent product, uh, which generally, you know, historically meant apartments. Uh, and student housing and senior housing and, and active adult. Uh, but of course, uh, the single family rental business has become a huge part of our uh, portfolio. We now own over 60,000 units of single family rentals across all our funds. And we typically do those in, uh, in build for rent. So we build clusters of them, subdivisions. Um, and that's been a pretty good business. That business is pretty tied to the performance of the housing markets um, in terms of uh, home ownership. We had an expectation a year ago that this change in the rate environment would really drive down home values. And as everybody has seen, it, didn't, it barely touched them. Because, uh, and I think we're realizing that so many people have a 3% mortgage on their home that, that nobody wants to sell their home right now because it's kind of too, too good to be true. Uh, and so, so there's very few homes on the market. Um, uh, I, I think that's gonna linger. Um, and, and so I think home values will, will stay, um, stay elevated despite this new rate regime uh, just because of the supply and demand of, of deals. Now, one thing we thought would happen if, if home prices would collapse is that there'd be developers that would have land positions that they would quickly need to uh, get rid of in order to not carry all that inventory because they weren't going to be able to deliver homes. Turns And so we thought we would get a great pipeline 
of deals on the build for rent side because the rents on the build for rent have, have been quite strong. The demographics are really in favor of that product right now. Um, and in fact, that has not happened. And the home builders uh, did did very well, thank you. And uh, and they've uh, they continue to to produce homes. You know, and part of it is just it's so hard um, to get through the the planning processes that that um, that they don't want to they don't want to give up these positions. So uh, the market stayed relatively stable as it relates to your question on geography. Uh, you know, I'm a Californian, so uh, uh, so I'm you know I have a front row seat to to the dynamic there that's so different than the Texas dynamic. Um, uh, but California has has had it. They really has a double edge to this sword. Not only do people not selling because they have a low interest rate locked in, but also they have a property tax advantage from from having bought the property a long time ago. That the property taxes don't reset like they do in Texas and other and other states. So the inventory of homes on the market in California has been uh, has gotten smaller, which is remarkable. Obviously, the demographics are. Um, against uh, uh, California right now, particularly in the cities. Um, you know, San Diego's held up quite well, but, uh, but certainly San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, LA have, have suffered. Um, but, uh, but I think that's hurt the rental markets more than it's hurt the, um, hurt the, the um, home ownership markets. Texas is just incredible growth. I mean, uh, and uh, but of course, it's so easy to build there that it's hard to get appreciation. So uh, we've seen it. Texas is appreciated faster than uh, uh, than California markets on, on balance over these last two years. Um, and, be, and that's because generally demand is a stronger um, driver of whether it's rents or home values uh, than supply. I mean, you have to have demand and uh and 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 Texas keeps growing, so I think the markets, both markets, stay, have stayed pretty uh, pretty resilient. Other than the urban apartments in in those cities I mentioned, why why haven't we seen the home builders step in in a much bigger way? I I look at the David Kelly charts from your firm, and you see them picking up home building a little bit, but you would think that they would be coming in to fill this massive gap between supply and demand at a much broader rate. What do, you, what, do you, what do you attribute that to? I think the uh, path to execution it gets harder and harder every year, whether it's the municipalities, uh, zoning constraints, um, it's the supply chain issues. You know, we lost a ton of home building labor after the Great Recession, um, really substantially back to Mexico, a lot of which did not return. And so they, we've had shortage of trades um, that have made the execution on home building really challenging. And we felt it in our, in our build for rent um, single family business. Um, uh, a lot more risk delivering 100 units of wood frame two-story houses than an urban office building, if you can believe it. And uh, uh, because the, the, the trades are just so hard to control. Um, now, obviously, the inflation pressures of the last couple of years have have really settled down, and that should that should help ramp up production a little more. But I think that the bureaucratic constraints are they they're not going to loosen up, and that'll always have a have a um, crimp on supply. 
Now, speaking a little bit about some of the trends that came out of COVID, uh, one of the biggest trends is, is working from home and how that impacts particularly office to transition back to commercial. Can, can you talk a little bit about the new trend of working from home? Is it here to stay? Are folks that are in the industry like yourself kind of planning around that and underwriting it as you make your investment decisions? Yeah, I think I think we could, you know, spend hours on the topic. And of course, we all do because it's pretty interesting and it's relevant to almost everybody who lives in the U.S. or lives around the world today. Um, I think irrespective of that, as an investor, uh, when we look at JPM REIT and some of our other core products, we feel that we don't have to make that guess on where the direction is going to go because there's so many other deals available we can do at a much lower risk profile and stay away from that sector. And so I happen to be one who believes that the markets will recover, uh, office markets will recover, and that downtowns will recover. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I have plenty of dissenters in my own shop. You know, we, we, all, we all debate this, but I do not see that asset class as being a part of a, of a uh, stabilized core portfolio of, of real estate um, because there's so many other ways to make money in a much lower risk profile. Um, I, think that, I think that the prices now, we're, we're starting to see some real trades at really compelling prices. I mean, there's in, in my hometown of San Francisco, there's a really nice low rise project in Jackson Square, which is a charming part of downtown that you can buy for 300 a foot today. Um, that, you know, it costs $1,500 a foot to build a new building in San Francisco. So we're talking 20% of replacement costs. We haven't seen those kind of discounts to replacement costs. I don't think I've ever seen that, even in 1992. So, uh, you know, which was a horrible year for, for real estate. So, uh, so I think there's going to be some amazing buys. Uh, I don't think San Francisco is going away. I don't think downtown's going away. I don't think Jackson Square is going away. I think it's going to take a long time, whether it takes five years or 15 years, I don't know. But I suspect if somebody buys that property for 300 a foot, uh, they're going to make, make money. And um, I just don't think it's right for a core open-ended product. So we're not doing that in GPM REIT. I think there'll be some really interesting closed-end funds that'll make, make some good money. You know, there'll be they'll start in 2024 and it'll be pretty, it'll be an interesting run. Is the opportunity there uh, potentially to convert it to multifamily? Is it, can you do that easily or is it, is it really tricky with permitting and things of that nature? Yeah, it's not just the permitting, it's really the basis. So I mentioned you could buy that Jackson square property for 300 a foot at 300 foot. It's still kind of hard to make the apartments pencil because of the cost to convert these properties. You really need like $100 a foot or $200 a foot. In a market where the assets were trading at seven, eight, nine $900 a foot, I mean, you, you need some massive value destruction before, before the apartment uh, conversion really starts to make sense. So I, I do think it'll happen. We, we've, we've done it in the past. We've done one in, uh, in Dallas. We did one in, um, uh, we've worked on one in, in DC. They exist. but you have to start with a pretty beat up bad building um, in a pretty beat up bad market to get to a basis that that that'll pencil. Got it. Well, we've been talking about a recession for quite some time. You know, there's, there's an old uh, industry 
expression that says, I'm never wrong. I'm just early in my calls. But anyway, this recession just doesn't, you know, seem to to uh, happen. But we've been talking about one for quite some time. Um, if we had a major uh, depression or excuse me, uh, recession, you know, how bad can it get from here? Or we are we already priced in some of these some of that information if and when we do have our next recession, yeah, which could be a long way away. We're positioning most of our portfolios, including JPM REIT, to be able to, to handle a recession uh, uh, if and when it comes. And that means on the commercial assets, make sure we have long lease terms with credit tenants. And on the residential housing assets, make sure we're focused on a low rent profile so that um, there's not as much volatility in the, in, the, in the NOIs. Generally, real estate does pretty well during a recession um, relative to stocks because just the, 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 the volatility of the NOI uh, is a lot less, uh, particularly in residential, than, in, um, uh, than, than for, for companies. So it, it tends to be a pretty good place to hide during a recession. Um, that that said, it's certainly not good for real estate when people lose jobs, and uh, you know we need we need incomes to be growing for all the product types to to work. So um, position ourselves for it. You know, I just sat through a J.P. Morgan uh, thing um, an hour ago and listened to the fixed income team. Well, they're all they they're they've already they're already feeling like we're in the recession. Like they've been talking recession for a year, as you said. And it's like a certainty if you're a fixed income trader. But uh, I don't see it when I look at the health of the of the apartment markets and the industrial markets. The con- consumer uh, goods that are flying through these supply chains are they're not stopping, and uh, and so the industrial assets are doing well. The the renter, uh, you know, our our lease trade outs on our apartments keep keep going up. Now the pace is really slowed. There's no more ten percent, fifteen percent rent trade outs. It's now you know two or three percent. Um, and you can see that, of course, in the inflation data. Um, but they're not dropping. And you know, this last quarter, we delivered, I think, across the U.S., ninety thousand apartment units, and uh, seventy to seventy-five thousand, I think, were absorbed. So we had net absorption of. That's really the measure to see where vacancy rates are going. What's supply, and then what was demand. And we had big supply, ninety thousand units in a quarter is a lot. Um, but we had 75,000 new units absorbed, almost as much. So we lost a little ground on the vacancy rate, maybe like a tenth of a percentage point, but it's still quite healthy as, you know, relative to historic norms. You have the advantage with uh, J.P. Morgan REIT that it's, it's relatively new, and so there's not a lot of legacy assets in there. You have a lot of new money to deploy. So that being said, in this market, where would you be deploying new money as an investor? Right. So we like to think we we bought our first real estate asset after the repricing. So uh, and and in fact, the first one we did buy, you know, we we renegotiated the price midway through. So which was nice. But um, and the and the values haven't moved much since the beginning of the year, and they moved a lot last year. They they probably, as I said before, went down fifteen percent, and I think they're broadly flat through this year. Um, what uh, the things we're chasing, we're really going after the consumer. And that really means supply chain and delivery of services. So uh, we're buying truck terminals, um, 
industrial outdoor storage where goods or vehicles or construction equipment are, in sto are stored. Um, those are kind of the types of, it's not so much the warehousing and storage, it's more how the goods move through the supply chain is what we're interested in. And, and, uh, and uh, industrial outdoor storage and truck terminals are two elements of that that we're, we're quite bullish on. Um, uh, sticking with the consumer, we also believe in the, in the services uh, element of the, of the economy. So we're looking for um, uh, retail deals that have uh, heavy concentrations of food and beverage, fitness, and medical office. So I think it's uh, we're staying away from retail. It's focused on soft goods, you know, clothing and and that kind of stuff, and more focused on service. It's really interesting the migration of medical from a traditional medical office building or on campus hospital building to retail locations, even even you know um, uh, orthopedists and you know those kind of specialists are now taking up retail locations. So so we like that business. On the housing side. Uh, we like the uh, what we call active adult, which is sort of like senior housing, but think no meals, no no services. It's more of a cultural and activities based um, strategy that um, uh, we're chasing those quite heavily. Um, we like affordable housing. So in Texas, we have some um, projects that that um, take advantage of a law call, um, called Public Finance Corporation that that helps you set aside a certain number of units in order to get a, a property tax exemption. Um, that's a great business for, for JPM REIT. Um, and, um, and then, as I said, we like the single family rental business in a format where we can control the cluster. So we, we don't buy houses one at a time. We don't like that business for a variety of reasons. What we like is um, single family rentals that we can operate like an apartment project. And that typically means building them. Great, thank you. We have a question out there, Tim. You want to read it? Yeah, in situations where a project has an equity gap due to lower leverage offered by lenders on a refinance, what do you expect cost of capital that will be demanded by those gap investors? Mes lender or preferred equity investor, as an example. <clears throat> so it's going to be pretty product type specific. Generally, we don't see a lot of, I'll call it rescue capital in these deals because the rescue capital is going to want more control than the owner is going to want to give up. So those deals are really hard to uh, put together. It sounds good on paper, but when you look, when you add up the total volume of transactions that happen, it's a pretty small segment of the market. Um, usually either the borrower works out a deal with their lender or the lender puts the screws to the borrower and the borrower is forced to sell. At the end of the day, it's really not a big deal to sell an asset if you can't refinance it. So and the lenders are going to say, hey, I don't care what your capital problems are. I want to be paid back. Take it to market. And that, that's what we see. Now, cost of capital it can be as bad as, and I've seen one of these deals last week, New York office building, leasing challenges, needs a lot of capital to re-lease the building, to fill up the occupancy. Um, the lender's in a fight with the borrower. The lender, senior lender, is willing to give a senior position to the new capital, meaning all the new capital 
gets paid back before the senior gets paid back. And the new capital gets a 15 before, before the uh, senior lender gets paid back. Uh, and, then they, and then there's a waterfall from there for sharing. That is as extreme as I've ever seen. For a senior lender to be willing to give up a 15 pref on an unlevered uh, senior position is remarkable. I don't know too much more about the deal. So there must be something really hairy in there that is creating this problem for the senior lender. But that is as bad as I've seen. Um, generally, if you're just talking about an apartment project, let's say that's that you know has been uh, is 85 million of financing on a hundred million dollar asset, and the lender says, "Hey, I want to be 75 million, not 85, and they need 10 million bucks." Uh, generally, that new capital is going to earn, you know, eight to 10, with some participation over that uh, if the if the sponsor does well. So that bridge capital, I would say, is still around eight to ten percent for a simple execution like an apartment, where the where the lender's willing to 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 allow the, the mezzanine loan or the bridge financing to to come in. So those are kind of the bookends. So we have another question in regards to sector tenant sector and life sciences is a, is a hot area or has been a hot area for the last couple of years. Can you speak about uh, when you look at underlying tenants and how you might be building or looking at assets? Um, are you looking at the underlying tenant sectors? Yeah, so life science is really interesting. There are a lot of, lot of lots I could say. We're we're pretty heavily invested across our other funds. We're not in J.P. Morgan REIT because um, uh, the market weakened quite a bit before we launched J.P. Morgan REIT. So we, I think, eventually we will have that as part of the. Uh, as part of J.P. Morgan REIT, but we're in no hurry because the market's going to be pretty weak for a while. So there was a lot built in this cycle. You might, if you follow it, you, you know, or if you live in Boston or, or uh, you know, central San Diego County, you'll know that um, uh, construction is off the charts for, for life sciences. And, you know, for good reason, investors, when the markets were hot in 2018, 2019, um, and a lot of private REITs were, were uh, anxious to buy the product, they paid significant premiums to replacement costs to buy lab space. And so that enticed a lot of developers to start building. And so now we have, uh, we're going to be facing a, a, uh, um, an oversupply. Uh, now, most of us believe that life sciences is here to stay in our economy. It's going to be a major driver over the next 10 to 20 years. So over time, we want to have a lot of exposure to the space. So I look at the problems in life science as being, you know, a one to two year problem. Um, and eventually we want to have exposure. It's a great business also because once you have the infrastructure, which is mostly plumbing and electrical, um, you build the benches, uh, all of that's really reusable. So unlike an office property where, you know, Callahan Capital comes in and says, well, I want my, you know, executive office in this corner, not the other corner. And I want this glass, not the old style glass. It's so expensive. Every tenant wants a new build out and, and it's a terrible business. Lab space, they just want the gas delivered and the liquids delivered to the bench and have enough HVAC to satisfy the regulators to be able to, you know, circulate air at the, at the right uh, volumes. Once you have that infrastructure in place, 
They don't care about anything else. So it's actually quite a good business because uh, the tenants have terrible credit. So you, you, you lose them a lot. But a lot of times you can replace a tenant with a new tenant without a lot of cost to the landlord. And that, that, in that sense, it's a little more like industrial. Thank you. There's another question from the audience here. Any metros you're avoiding for multifamily for the near f- future and any you're particularly interested in? <clears throat> well, uh, generally, we have an orientation towards growth when it comes to um, multifamily. So that brings us to uh, the Sun Belt. And then we're we're still on, on the bandwagon of suburban rel- uh, over urban. Um, so that those trends have endured. And a lot of that is a millennial you know, the millennials are, their kids are in elementary school now. And, and so, um, so that's, that's really driven suburban, uh, migration. Um, there's a, there's a couple, you know, two markets in particular that were so hot, uh, in the last four years that have turned very cold are, uh, Phoenix and Las Vegas, no surprise. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to avoid Phoenix and Las Vegas. We, we, we do believe in the growth prospects there. But uh, it's a different underwriting today than it was uh, two years ago. We'll we'll have a couple. We'll assume there's going to be no rent growth for a couple of years. They have to absorb all this new product, which will get absorbed. But um, so I think cap rates are going up, meaning prices are going down in those two markets. Um, uh, most of the Texas markets have held up pretty well, um, despite incredible construction. Um, but I think we're going to see a few more Sunbelt markets. Uh, see supply pressures that push rents down um, below zero, rent growth down below zero. Um, and then we're, yeah, we're, if there's no growth in the submarket in the, in the metro area, we're staying away. So that includes a lot of the Midwest markets, um, which it's just, it's just hard to, to grow rents if you don't have positive um, population growth relative to the U.S. Here's a great, great question from the audience, uh, and we hear it all the time. Why would I invest in real estate today when I could get such strong returns in the bond market? You know, treasuries, right. short-term treasuries are offering over 5% uh, state tax-free. It's a good, good question. It is, and I would say it's the number one question that I face when I have these meetings. And, you know, look, I'm in the bond market too. So, uh, you know, I'm in both. Uh, I happen to believe that all this stimulus over the past 15 years, whether it's, you know, post GFC or COVID, or now it's onshoring or energy transition. Um, I don't think that's what's driving this short-term inflation problem that we had over the past 12 months or whatever, 18 months. I think this is a much bigger issue and uh, who knows how it's going to play out or how the fed will respond to it. Um, but if that is in fact the case, I think you need some protection against being overexposed to bonds because bonds won't do well in that scenario, whether it's whether it's rates increasing or whether it's inflation. And I think if you're in real estate that is oriented towards growth, you know, such as apartments in the Sun Belt or truck terminals uh, or some of the other things we're chasing, uh, single family uh, rentals in the in subdivisions. Those are going to be pro-inflationary. And I think every portfolio needs to have an element of that in their, in, in their, uh, in their arsenal. It may not deliver the current yield that, that, that you think um, you know, compares favorably to some of the other holdings, but it'll provide the growth 
that you're going to need to be able to deal with with um, some of the pressures that I think our economy is going to be facing. By the way, that doesn't that doesn't speak well for an asset class like opportunistic office, right? So uh, office is so weak that sure you could get a you might be able to get an amazing purchase price and might get to book a profit there on a great buy, but it's not necessarily going to be a pro inflationary trade the way traditional apartments will, where pe- you know so much of, of the income is driven by people's wages. Yeah, and according to your uh, chart book that I, I read recently, uh, the current Fed funds futures contracts are now pointing to declining rates by, by year end, um, which would obviously make your reinvestment risk on those short-term treasuries quite high, right, if, if, if they start to trend, trend down. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I personally don't buy that, but I know that's where the bond traders are putting the curve. Uh, everybody thinks there's recession and then that'll drive the rates back down. I happen to think the rates are going to stay up in the fives for a couple quarters. And uh, and that's going to that's going to be that's going to put some pressure on some folks. So. Uh, um, but. You know, I think you, in terms of managing these portfolios, you got to be ready for either either scenario. What we're doing in JPM REIT is keeping our leverage low. So for one, we won't have quite the volatility if there's a large recession. For two, if the rates do drop, well, we can add leverage then. And so, but we want to really keep our flexibility as far as the balance sheet's concerned. And we're doing this not only in JPM REIT, but in, in all of our funds across, across our Real Estate America's platform is, Keep the leverage low as we enter this type of environment so that we can kind of kind of react as the changes come. And can you talk a little bit about uh, core versus opportunistic? First, kind of define the differences between the two and where you see the best investment opportunities. Sure. Um, so I think at its most basic, core delivered core real estate delivers an income return that grows, right? So it's that it's differentiated, of course, from bonds because not only does the income grow, but also you have a, you can eventually sell the asset for, for hopefully more than you bought it for. Uh, but, but the whole idea is to, to generate long-term income yield and growth. Um, it's tied to inflation. Opportunistic is, uh, Buy it at a certain point, buy an asset at a certain point in time, whether it's a timing play or a management play or a physical repositioning or a development, some kind of business plan that uh, results in a profit margin. And when the project's done and you've increased the value of the asset, uh, then you sell it immediately, book the gain. And uh, and a lot of investors like that because you can get capital gains as most of your return versus uh, versus income. The REIT kind of sits a little in between those, the way we run the REIT. So we do do development in this REIT because our aim is to deliver total return. But a lot of times we'll do development and we'll hold the asset after. Okay, so the asset will get written up in the REIT. Um, and so we'll benefit from the appreciation. But <clears throat> most of the assets we build, we want to keep. Those are our best assets because they're brand new. We built them for tomorrow's economy, not yesterday's economy. And so as we sell, we'll sell our older assets and keep our more forward uh, looking assets. So it's a little bit of a blend. Uh, The other thing that's nice about 
about the REIT format is that there's depreciation in, in real estate, of course, and that helps um, treat the income, a lot of the income as return of capital. And so there's less of a tax burden uh, in the REIT format uh, than you get in a lot of other um, uh, income producing assets. Uh, so it kind of has elements, elements of both. Uh, opportunities, I mean, right now, I prefer the core REIT strategy because I think you can get a lot of the return without taking any of the risk. I mean, it's one of these rare moments in these cycles where, where great properties come for sale. You can buy them without debt. You can have an amazing balance sheet. You can be below replacement cost. And then as the markets heat up again, you can start to sell into those markets and then build assets. Today, you're not going to build because you can buy for cheaper than it costs to build. But let's say three, four years from now, who knows what the time frame is, we're going to see another hot market. And then we can pivot and start to be a little more opportunistic. And that's the way most of our open-ended funds are designed, including, including this REIT. And speaking of, of yields, what, what is your um, JP REIT uh, yielding today? And how much of that is offset by depreciation or could be expected to be offset by depreciation? So I don't think because of the nature of this call that I can say that on the call. Oh, okay. I can say on, on the website, I do think we show it now a six-month. Uh, uh, we have two quarters of dividends that have been around 4%. But you, you got to look on the website. Um, uh, but that's a, I think that's a no-go zone for this format. Yeah, sounds good. And how how, how about uh, last question here, by the way, from the for the audience? Uh, how about public REITs versus private real estate? What's your opinion on that? Sure, uh, there are a lot of great public REITs. There are a lot of lousy ones. So it's just like any you know basket of stocks. Uh, uh, what we find in in public REITs is the price is set by that incremental trader, right? So if there's a hundred people that own a REIT stock. Um, Maybe only one wants to sell. Well, when that one sells the sells, the, the value of that stock is now set by, by what that one person sold sold for. Versus if a hundred people are in a in a um, uh, in a partnership to own a property, uh, private property, uh, you know, they all gotta agree before they decide to sell. And so that value is a very different value than the volatile REIT stock. So volatility is the main is the main difference. Now, the other piece of it is, um, just as I talked about the huge disparity of different sectors, uh, you see that not only across different sectors of REITs, but also the management teams within those sectors are, are often quite, have quite different strategies. You know, what, there's, a, there's a Southern California industrial focused REIT, and then there's Prologis, which owns industrial all over the world, very different strategies. So not only do you have to kind of put your lid on, do I want to be an industrial or office or retail? Well, you got to figure out, well, if I'm going to be an industrial, what segment are you going to be in? If in the private REIT space, generally, uh, the, or this is the case with us and with most of our competitors, it's a diversified portfolio across sectors uh, that our research teams, our acquisition teams, our asset management teams who work in this stuff every day, are informing the decisions of how to allocate across those sectors. So you get a real diversified look versus having to either buy an in, a read index, which covers everything, or buy a uh, or picking the sectors yourself. So I, th I think you get a diversification in a private read and you get less volatility in a private read. 
um, and and therefore get I think a, a better exposure to the to the property type. The, the values are set by the fundamentals of the property, not by the capital markets or the necessarily the yield that's being driven by the by the by the REIT. Another question here on on international investing outside of the United States. Do you as a firm look outside the U.S.? I know we spent a lot of time here on this call on U.S. specific. Thanks. Um, we we have a great team in uh, Asia. They're based in Hong Kong, but they have several offices across Asia. And then same thing in Europe. We have a London team and a bunch of um, local offices across the EU. Um, uh, th um, they have um, funds that are dedicated to Asia and dedicated to Europe. It happens that in JPM REIT, we're set up to invest up to 10% overseas. Um, we haven't done that yet. We're not going to do it until we get to be much bigger scale and can handle that kind of diversification. But we are really excited about that because they do come up with deals that have the same kind of, uh, you know, that follow the same themes that we're seeing in the U.S. Oftentimes it happens later in, in Europe or in, uh, in, in Asia, and, and we can take advantage of that. So as it relates to like truck terminals, as I was mentioning, industrial outdoor storage, 55 and older apartments. All those things, if they show up in, in our um, pipelines in Europe and in Asia, we will be able to take advantage of that, which I, I'm really looking forward to. Good, Trevor, I think we're ready to wrap. Do you have anything else on your end? I don't. Just just want to thank you so much for your time today. It's a great uh, presentation. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much, much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Doug Schwartz, uh, for taking the time and, and Anna and JP Morgan for setting up this call. There's a, a lot of uncertainty and volatility in the markets, particularly in the real estate markets. Please consider Callan Capital as a resource to you, your family, and your friends. I can be reached at Tim at CallanCapital.com. And Trevor's on the call here at Trevor at CallanCapital.com. Thank you all for taking time out of your day. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you.